I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. So I saw this hilarious tweet the other day. Georgina Hibbert, who's a follower of ours, tweeted it out. She said she had to explain recently what the save icon on your computer is for. <laughs> she had a 22-year-old colleague who knew it only as the save icon and didn't know what the image was. She thought it was a battery. And somebody else said that they'd had a similar experience where they thought it was a vending machine with a beverage <laughs> dispensed. And of course, it's because oh like, people who aren't of our generation don't know what a floppy disk is. Right? <laughs> They've never seen one. And it got me thinking about things, especially in relation to footy, that people wouldn't know or wouldn't have a reference point for. It's like every time when I go to the game and I say, I say I'm going to tape the game, it's a, it's a habit that yeah. I can't break. And it reminds me, my niece told me this story once of how they went to school and they were learning about things from the olden days. <laughs> and she came in and she said to me, do you know, Auntie Kate, that in the olden days, they used to play music on giant CDs? <laughs> <laughs> and I really freaked her out when I showed her we had a record player. That's so funny. That's like the golem pies used to wear coat and hat. And <laughs> yeah. so I always have a thing that I feel like the golem pies look just not quite right. <laughs> yeah, they haven't yeah. got their hat and coat on. Yeah. Which which is kind of the opposite to the dressing gown on the interchange bench uh, that the players <laughs> used to have. Although GWS had the electric blanket on yes. their bench oh, on Friday. Yes. So but they go together. Can you remember anything, Em? Oh, yeah, I've got one for you. Well, the owner of a brown Toyota license plate TKZ127, you've left your lights on. You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Hello, my groundbreaking history makers. Hello and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am so pleased to be back. I am your host, Emma Race, and I am joined, as always, in the Stu studio by my football loving, sanctum, football kicking, talking, silly sisters. I'm going to let you introduce yourselves. I forgot I my like name. I like to mix it up. I like to mix it up. I already forgot my name, man. That's the longest intro. It's Nicole Hayes here. Oh, hi, it's Lucy Race. Oh, Have you hi. recovered from your leather poisoning, Em? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was out with leather poisoning. I've got a story about that for you later. Bonjour. Uh, it's Kate Sear. Ciao, ciao, I think is what you're meaning to say. Well, no, bonjour. I'm, oh. going, to, I'm going to Paris tomorrow. Nothing makes you really dislike someone more than <laughs> when they say, I'm going to Paris tomorrow. I know. Uh, pardon. <laughs> Okay, au revoir. Ferme le port on the way out. Okay, nothing. Don't let the port hit you in the derriere on the way out. Okay? Oui, oui. I think we should get bumper stickers. It has been the most unbelievable weekend in football that we're coming off the back of. And I want to be excited about the scores and the goals and the fact that our team had a win that no one expected. But for me, 
It was just about the snow. Oh, my gosh. I was so excited. I completely agree. And you could see in the crowd, everybody was also a little bit like this. want to build a snowman. Come <laughs> <laughs> on, let's go and play. And this you is... know who played the role of Anna? Poppy? Alistair Clarkson. <laughs> Alistair Clarkson was full of joy and glee at the prospect of the weather. It was like he had said to those players, come on, do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> and the snowman was actually beat GWS. Yes. And they said, yes, Anna, we do. We actually got the metaphor. Well, thanks, Lou. Clarko. <laughs> but keep going no, with it. We'll make some s'mores. It's so, a good point, though, because Clarko is known for an overly elaborate metaphor. And as you all know, I'm obsessed with his with any over, overly elaborate coaching metaphor. So it normally does use mm. require an explanation, like the shark. There's the, shark. the famous shark mm. of the 2008 grand final. But also remember there was a time when Clarko apparently poured open a <laughs> bottle of plain flour. There was some overly elaborate thing about stepping over the line and in the line. And jeez. Loves a gimmick. He loves a gimmick so much. I wouldn't have been surprised if he was like, okay, cue snow. (laughs) And it was all fey-fey. Nicole, have you ever seen it? I mean, you're quite old. Have you ever seen this in your days? Uh, Not uh, snow at the footy. (laughs) I'd like a vote on who looks the youngest of the (laughs) Addison. Anyway, um, no, I haven't sat through snow, but I did sit through negative five degrees the one and only time I went to an NFL game and at Philadelphia wow. versus the Cowboys. And it was doubly complicated because I had, I'd been living in Hawaii for two years. So <laughs> I, I had, so my coat was like, shirt. I grass skirt didn't really serve you. <laughs> no, all the coconut cups. No. <laughs> so yeah, I was cold. I was cold. And my father-in-law made me wear this ridiculous jacket that was like, you know, a tent basically. And I mocked him and said, oh yeah, sure. And, you know, was humoring him, but thank God, because I would have died. It was amazing to see people in ski goggles. Like they knew <laughs> what was coming, <laughs> right? Ski goggles. And they planned ahead. I liked seeing the tweets from overseas, people going, oh, isn't that cute? Yeah. The Australians <laughs> are freaking out because there's a tiny bit of snow. But was actually, this was something that I found interesting is that the AFL uh, media throng, especially the photographers, are amazing and the socials of the actual clubs are amazing at capturing such beautiful moments. But the snow was very hard to capture mm. on mm-hmm. film. You couldn't mm-hmm. quite get a photo of it. It wasn't hitting the ground and leaving a pile and there was no snowmen, unfortunately, but or snow women. I mean, snow people, snow persons, snowing there was without a, there, us. Without us, there was a moment in the <laughs> there was a moment in the uh, commentary where BT said snowman or snow. No, BT said snow person. Yeah, and Bruce goes, "That's very politically correct of you." PT? And I thought, well, God, think at long last. That's the thing he gets right. <laughs> I don't know if it was a snow that unsettled them. Real. They're not even They're real. Not he's, even real. De- s- he's deferring to, to the feelings of not even real people. It was delightful and it I really can't was. get nearly Amazing. enough of it. No. And Very seeing special. the hooks at quarter time, the players, just their faces up, like they just will look like children at Christmas. And Izzy, Isaac Smith at the end of the game said that it was his favourite game of football ever. Yeah. And I mean, this guy's yeah. won a few premierships too. So he said that was the most fun I've had playing footy ever. That's mm. extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Look, the winning probably helped, to I be honest. I don't think it would have been the same if they'd lost. No, yeah. I don't think it would have. It would have just been cold if you were the Giants. Mm. But what happened was that was like the precursor to a really weird blowout of mm. scores across mm. the board for the rest of the, the round. There was some record-making... <laughs> 
Like the Bulldogs had at one point, I think they had 21 unanswered yes. goals. I found myself quite disappointed when Essendon kicked mm. three at the end. I, I feel like that's quite mm. mean of me to mm. say that, but I was like, oh, don't let them do it, don't let them do it. The Lions and the Suns, 144 to 53. Yeah. Even North Cats, I, I mean, the score doesn't really reflect it, but they really did kick away with it. At one point, oh, so North kicked one goal. I think that was all one they kicked. One goal mm-hmm. eight. Mm-hmm. That's just not been their go. I know. I was really interested in the memos that came out from Gil McLaughlin after mm. the game. The low scoring. Players, yeah. Yeah. To try but, um, to address the low scoring. D- addressing yeah. it. And the outpouring of concern about whether the competition should be shut down on, on Twitter. I guess the men just aren't up for it. Maybe up, not. Aren't up to it. They're not really built for the game. Oh, I don't think just so. Just never. I mean, I know that we're being tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> But I will never tire. I will never tire of this. I wasn't, like actually. I was like, warm up the memo machine. <laughs> yep. When when North Melbourne yeah. kicks one goal, P. Mm-hmm. just control P. Yeah, just pr- just <laughs> warm it up. Let's get it going. Um, there's been another huge announcement, especially for little Lucy Race. Who, Aww. I mean, you got a dog named Ruffy. Your middle name is Ruffhead. (laughs) (laughs) You love Jared Ruffhead like he's actually more than you love your own children. And he's announced that he's called time. A couple of players and this is what happens. You know, we're hitting that part of the Mm -hmm. season where people Mm -hmm. start saying goodbye. How are you taking the news, Lou? I'm pretty good, actually, today. I think it's been tough, but I'm going to be okay. Because it's a pretty special event, I thought we should farewell Ruffy in a fairly special way. So I've written a poem. Of course you have. Would you indulge me? Of course. Please. The poem is called Don't Cry Because It's Over, Smile Because It Happened. The 2004 draft was our first clue with Jared Ruffhead picked at number two. Ahead the likes of Buddy Who (laughs) and another guy named Geordie Lou. Four premierships to his name. A Coleman and All-Australian fame, but tough times needed to be overcame before Captain oh Captain we could exclaim. His exploits could fill a highlights reel, agile, even with someone on his heel. But his humour and kindness was honest and real. Even fans from other clubs saw his appeal. So the time has come to say goodbye. We wish you well, but still we cry. One small mystery remains, I cannot lie. Do we spell Ruffy with an I-E or a Y? <laughs> Was. That almost rhymed. Thanks. Nice. I, I really enjoyed. <laughs> to be to almost. be really serious, I'm I'm so happy that he's been able to retire on his own terms because I think the thing about Ruffy is we know that he faced a really huge challenge with melanoma, and there's not very many people who go through life without knowing someone who's facing a challenge against cancer and or other serious illnesses and. To be honest, when it was announced that um, Jared had cancer, that was probably the worst thing that you could have possibly heard. So the mm-hmm. fact that he was able to come back and play football and to do it despite the effects of treatment is just joyous. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's hard to be sad. It, it just isn't. And watching him do his press conference yesterday, we saw his trademark cheek, especially when Alistair Clarkson said something about Buddy and Geordie Lewis and Ruffy having four premierships and he leant over and said, oh, Bud's only got two. (laughs) And I thought that was just, you know, classic, classic Ruffy to sledge his best mate. Amazing. And um, Aaron Sanderland's also um, resigned. Retired. Retired. Thank you. Farewell game, yeah. The biggest mystery is 
how on earth are they going to cheer him off? Oh. Yeah. Seriously, you're going to need to get those trees from Lord of the Rings to <laughs> carry. Like, who? And the every, whole team will have to do it. You can't get, leave it to two guys. You it's can't. Not fair. They might just need to lie him down and be like Gulliver's <laughs> travels and just carry him out. I think we need to get innovative. Totally. Like, how do you cheer off Aaron Sandler? You can imagine them all like saying, not me, not me. They're not the only players retiring. Jared McVeigh from Sydney's announced his retirement. Scott Thompson from North. Corey Maynard from the D's, and I'm sure there'll be some others before the end of the year as Can well. Can we just check that all that's correct? Because last year Nicole Hayden went through the list of <laughs> people who were retiring, retired. and she retired some players that weren't retiring. Yeah. No, only one. I just, just checked the wrong first name. That's well, look, if it's fake news, you guys can deal with. And he's since week. retired anyway, by the way. So I was preempting. It was Tom Boyd, remember? <laughs> oh my god! Oh yes. Oh, Hello. Look at you. That has not you. Psychic. Anyway, there will be more and more names. I imagine the thing that I've loved is at the centre of a lot of these retirements has been the players have talked about their family and their children. Their children have been involved in it. A lot of them, for them, their biggest and most favourite moment has been having their kids with them through the journey on on the ground, maybe after grand final. I love that we're seeing those displays of parenting from, from the masculine side. I'm Sabrina Frederick and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Are we ready to roll up our sleeves, sure. ladies? Okay, it is time to melee. There's been some big news this week. I think we should start with Ben Simmons. I just saw uh, there was a thing on Twitter that said, has he outstayed his welcome? I think it was Graham Corns asking the question, has he outstayed his welcome? Like he actually, this is his home. Yeah. So mm. he doesn't no, need us. He doesn't need a, or our permission. a welcome, a farewell or permission to stay or go. Lucy? Yep. I think you touched on some interesting points there, Em. <laughs> um, so what is interesting is that we could have talked about Ben Simmons the last few weeks because he's been in the headlines. He was in the headlines as coming on board as an executive producer of the Adam Goods film, The Australian Dream. The reason that he really felt that he wanted to be part of that is to take that story global because there are a lot of themes that he feels are global themes. We could have talked about him because of being re-signed to the Philadelphia 76ers, becoming the most well-paid Australian athlete. But what's happened is, you know, in coming back to Australia, we've seen this funny thing happen and it's always interesting when it happens after a, a particular event. This, this event was that Ben alleged that he was racially profiled at the casino. And what we saw after that was the media machine kind of tick into a narrative. It's something that is familiar to us. We, we talk about the tall poppy syndrome. We also have a tall poppy syndrome that has racist undertones in this country. Um, so we see people like Ellen Jones ranting about a basketball clinic. You know, this terrible athlete has, you know, who earns all this money has charged $200, which is ridiculous because I've paid, you know, easily that amount for my kids to go to sporting clinics in the past. But we start to see sections of the media paint him in a certain way. And so any action gets viewed through a particular lens. In order to kind of talk about this, I just want to hone in on one thing I saw on a news.com website. They had an article about what had happened with Ben Simmons and the discourse around whether he was, you know, being too big for his boots. <laughs> they ran a poll and their poll was worded this way. It said, has your view of Ben Simmons been changed by his visit to Australia? The options were, yes, he's come across as entitled and out of touch, or no, he's just shone a light on Australia that it doesn't like. 
And what is interesting about those two responses is that they are not unbiased in themselves. <laughs> so the first one is really broad and it's that, you know, if you want to say, yes, I think, you know, he's out of touch, it's quite broad and it's going that tall poppy angle. It's something that people who might not necessarily know all of, you know, the different parts of a story can just go, yeah, yeah, I think he's a bit entitled. Whereas to say, no, I my, my view of him hasn't changed it's quite political. It's bringing race into it and it's aiming at a smaller section of people who are more open to an honest discussion about racial bias. That in turn then feeds the narrative because then all of a sudden you can start saying, well, in a recent poll, 70% of people said, we think this. You know, we've just had two documentaries shining mm. a light on the way the media can actually shape a narrative, the way that it can stoke the flames, the way that clickbait has consequences. I'm reminded of something that Nova Paris said last week on the podcast, which was, if we tell you something's racist, just listen to us. It is. There's a few pieces that I've read that have been really great on this. And one I would just like to read from is Ahmed Youssef wrote a piece for The Guardian called Young, Black and Rich. Why does sporting success push so many buttons in Australia? And he said, and I'm quoting here, there is something of a pattern when it comes to people of colour in Australia talking about racism. There is a process of behaviour, a machine moving to silence whoever dares voice their opinion. So we will link to that on our socials. I highly recommend you go and read it. There's also another piece by Megan Huss that talks about what is everyone's problem with Ben Simmons. That was the title of, of her piece. And she talks about all of the good stuff he does. But what I'd also like to say is we should afford people a degree of respect without having to say, you know, list all of their altruistic achievements mm-hmm. as well. That should be the default, shouldn't it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I feel like the whole story is almost summed up in a single Titus O'Reilly tweet. He said, Ben Simmons' visit to Melbourne makes me so proud. We learnt so much from the Adam Goods situation. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's so true, isn't it? Yeah. Everything about it is frustrating and, and ludicrous. And I, Lucy, we were talking about this off air. You know, one of the important points, an observation some people have made, is that one of the many media voices who's joined this chorus against Ben Simmons is Alan Jones, who you mentioned earlier. Um, Alan Jones, of course, has come in for pretty um, severe criticism through the these Adam Goods documentaries and Ben Simmons is the executive producer of one of them. I don't know whether that's just a coincidence or not, but there is a persistent discourse in this country in opposition to people of colour who are prepared to speak out and speak up. And that question you you mentioned, Lucy, in the um, in the newspapers, that newspaper poll is quite interesting. You know, the first part of the question says, is he entitled? Or the wording is, he's entitled. Yeah, he's entitled. He mm. comes across as entitled to me, entitled not to be uh, racially profiled, <laughs> racially vilified, and entitled to speak out about it if he is. And, and entitled to wear story. camo if he wants. To. I mean, really, this is, I mean, there's a bigger fashion question to be asked. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole <laughs> other people, thing. But people, if they want to wear camo, they can. You know what yeah. else? Like, I didn't understand white male entertainment reporters buying in to defend the Crown Casino. Mm. I was like, I'm really confused about what gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. You know, when did this become a flag that needed to be waved? It speaks back to this um, Australian kind of altruistic idea of ourselves. I would say deluded concept of ourselves about that notion of the mateship inequality and all of these things that we espouse very publicly but then don't live. You know, I lived in America for some years and 
you're allowed to be exceptional. You're encouraged to be an individual. Standing up is actually admired and it isn't here. And I, I remember making the adjustment living there, people being able to use the eye so much more freely, whether in a sport sporting environment or in a working environment. And rightly or wrongly, that is absolutely part of a culture that, you know, we should be more familiar with than we are given how much of their cultural products we consume. But mm. I do think it is particularly challenging for us when an Australian comes back espousing that, especially, of course, when that Australian doesn't look like what we want them to look like. There's another piece by Chris Young that's called Australia Has a Ben Simmons Problem, and he talks about the way that Liz Cambage has been treated as well. And that reminds me of a piece that she wrote in the Players' Tribune about her issues with mental health and her ongoing health battles. It just reminded me that every time, you know, we talk about people in the media, we also need to think about, you know, how that's actually affecting people. And, you know, we don't always know everything else that's going on. And with Liz, you know, she has always copped it from Australian media. You know, it was the same with Kathy Freeman when she wore the flag. I mean, any, you know, we, we love them when they're successful, but the minute they anyone speaks up and in any way counters or questions these notions of ourselves, mm. they're immediately shot down. I was recently in a Women of the World Roundtable conference, which was amazing. There were some incredible women um, sitting at the table and there was a woman there who was an Indian woman who had lived in South Africa and she had faced huge racial prejudice, hadn't been able to study what she wanted to study because people with black skin weren't allowed to um, study medicine so she had to choose a different career. And she came out, she actually ended up having quite a hideous and violent situation happened to her and she moved out to Australia and she said she actually at times longed for being back in South Africa where racism was overt, it was spoken about, it was written in rule books and she knew where she could and couldn't go because she said the racism in Australia and the gendered and sexist ways that she's been prejudiced against in the workplace is always pushed under the table, never addressed and it just actually makes you think you're going mad. Wow. And I think Ben Simmons coming out of being the executive producer of one of those documentaries and then living that experience, he must think, where am I? Like Mm. I've I've fallen down the rabbit hole and this is just, this this is an insanity. Katie, something amazing that we saw on Twitter this week was Simone Biles, the gymnast, in slow motion, and (laughs) it was mesmerising. Yeah, it was. It's amazing. I wanted to just recognise and celebrate her achievements today. Um, So she is the American gymnast who just competed at the US Gymnastic Championships over the last week. She's the first woman in 70 years to win six US all-around titles, and she did so many extraordinary things in that tournament that I can barely list them all, Um, but I just want to single out the two that won her the most plaudits. First is that in her balance beam routine, she completed what's called a double twisting, double somersault dismount, which had never been done by a woman before. I can and she barely stuck even the landing. <laughs> yeah. stuck the la- I can barely even say it, yeah. uh, let alone contemplate doing it. <laughs> but wow, it was an extraordinary moment, and it set the the internet on fire. Here is a call of that absolutely historic moment. Here it comes: two flips, two twists, never been done in competition. Oh! <laughs> And you see that smile? That makes everything just 
a little bit more palatable. Incredible. And then if that weren't enough, after she did that, she became the first female gymnast to land what's called a triple twisting double somersault on floor exercise in competition. Um, And you can go online and watch the clips. And as you said, Em, they're available in super slow-mo, which is well worth watching. If she can pull both of those moves off at the World Championships, which will be held later this year, she will have four skills that are named after her. Um, Many people say she's the greatest gymnast of all time. Now, there was a fantastic thread on Twitter by Suzanne F. Boswell that I followed that breaks down that floor manoeuvre and why it was so difficult. And what Boswell does is tell the story of the evolution of floor routines over time. And she notes that the triple-double on the floor has the highest difficulty value assigned to any skill ever, as far as she is aware. So to pull it off is amazing. But as always with these things, they did turn a little bit sour because it's seemingly never sufficient for women like Biles to uh, achieve something like this on their own. It has to always be situated, apparently, within the context of men's achievements. And unfortunately, Boswell herself does that in the thread. She then ends up comparing it to men. She says that Biles's triple-double is better than any man's that she's ever seen. But the BBC also did it, and they claimed that her floor routine would almost stand up in the men's competition. Oh. As if that would somehow well be the her. true marker of success, which I just found extremely frustrating. But what we didn't hear, and this is what I wanted to single out, was what Biles had endured in the lead up to the tournament. So in January 2018, you might remember, she publicly revealed that she was one of the hundreds of gymnasts that had been sexually assaulted by the US team doctor Larry Nasser. He's now being jailed for life. The US championships came in the same week that the US Congress released a really major report into NASA's abuse and how and why it was able to continue for so long. And the report was scathing about the US Olympic Committee and USA Gymnastics and also the FBI and Michigan State University where NASA had also been a doctor. It said that all of those organisations had had opportunities to stop NASA but failed to do so. And I think we have to reflect on why it is that um, women who were particularly targets of his um, abuse and violence had not been believed and not been heard and why no action had been taken. So Biles returned to competing after this um, terrible history. At last week's championships, she had this to say about it. It's hard coming here for an organisation and having had them fail us so many times. And we'd, we had won gold. We've done everything that they asked us for, even when we didn't want to. And they couldn't do one damn job. You had one job. You literally had one job and you couldn't protect us. And it's just really sad because now every time I go to the doctor or training, I get worked on. It's like, I don't want to get worked on, but my body hurts. I'm 22. And at the end of the day, that's my fifth rotation and I have to go to therapy. But it's just hard and we try to work through it, but it'll take some time. I'm strong. I'll get through it but it's hard. So I want to acknowledge the extraordinary achievement of Biles and the incredible hardship that she's had to overcome. And I know that what she's endured is a very specific kind of adversity and I don't want to take away from that at all. But it also strikes me that what she's dealing with and and her fellow competitors have dealt with is not unique in women's sport. And that is that female athletes are frequently working within contexts of adversity, albeit of different kinds. And I just wanted us to pause... And let that sink in. We can watch those clips over and over and over again. We can acknowledge the enormity of the achievement, but let us reflect on what she's had to do to get there without any 
burden of comparison to men because we don't we don't need that on its own terms. I think we have to acknowledge and recognise that. Well said, Katie. And if um, that conversation has brought up any issues for you and you need extra support, you can always call one eight hundred Respect. I really want to talk about Caroline Wilson today. We just accept that Caroline Wilson exists in this world (laughs) and we so rarely talk about her genius and her um, strength and her ability to just drop truth bombs, moving against the machine and saying things that are really hard for people to hear and they're people that she works with. So she has said a couple of things this week. The first thing that I want to talk about is on her Channel 9 program. She has a segment called Caro's Arrow, which just as a side chat, I just want to say, I don't, I really don't like that she has a segment that names an arrow with her name. Like, I just, she doesn't need a cartoon. This is so below the office of the president. Like, (laughs) she deserves so much respect. Maybe some fanfare, maybe some trumpeter. But she had this to say about the AFLW competition. The AFL has a problem with women. To be specific, the AFLW and how to run a competition that loses money. But that doesn't help hundreds of young women around the country who still have no clear idea as to how many games they're going to play in 2020 or when their season is going to start. A few weeks ago, it was early January, then back to early February, back to mid-January, and now it seems to be early February again. AFLX, no AFLX. It's just inconceivable to me that part-time footballers who are planning moves into state, taking long service leave and putting study on hold, still don't know again, as we approach this third AFLW season, when it is going to start. But that's the story of the AFLW. Where is the long-term plan? And how on earth are we going to fit 18 teams into the competition by 2024? Whatever happened to a fresh new league and that blank piece of paper. Gillen, where is the long-term strategy for AFLW? Where is the long-term Gosh. strategy for AFLW? Where is the short-term strategy mm. for AFLW? Where is the strategy? Oh, completely. Any I'm, kind. I'm just going to pick her up on this. We're, going, we're heading into the fourth season, but she gets the nuance of what these players actually do put themselves through and having to take time off, having to stop study, all that kind of stuff. And then you know that they're going to face so much criticism when they're not perfect on mm. the field. We need big voices like Caro saying these things to draw the light to it. And I'm really impressed that she did it heading into the, the AFL-M finals because I think that often AFLW gets really sidelined mm. as this other thing that we don't talk about until everyone's open to their presence on Christmas Day. And then all of a sudden we go like, oh, my God, there's a season coming. At the moment, if we don't know when it's going to start, like I can't even organise kids sport if I don't know when that's no. going to be. You think about these women who move interstate, who are moving mountains. We know that there's new teams coming in. We don't understand how it's going to work. So I'm really grateful that she put that on the agenda. Mm, absolutely. I spoke earlier about the adversity that women have to experience as athletes, and this is a very different kind of adversity, but it's another variation on that mm. theme. If and She's right. I mean, we know a lot of women, we've interviewed a lot of women on this program who play AFLW, who study in Victoria, or who have partners and lives and families who don't know where they're going to live, who don't know whether they should relocate and and get a job. And we spoke once, I I remember once on this show saying that, you know, what then happens is that there is a public outpouring from some people who are adverse to AFLW who call for better footy, higher scores, better skill levels, etc. And that they want 
champagne footy on a Chardonnay budget. This is a nut. This you is- love saying that. It's a <laughs> really do, a cordial quite, budget, really, I'm, isn't it? It's, it's not even it's, Chardonnay. But it's true. I mean, it's no criticism of the players, but they're working in a they're working with mm. playing with one hand tied mm. behind their back. And you know, the other thing is those last minute logistics cost money. That is a reality. Mm. If you're going to do something at the last minute, that costs money. And these are athletes who aren't being paid the big bucks. And speaking of money, the AFL has a a 70 million revenue boost expected, which the players, there's a lot of talk about the players getting a cut of that, but there was no reference to the AFLW. If you think about what they could do, this is a not-for-profit organisation, so that money is meant to go back into the game. We're better to do it than the AFLW. They should have three years in advance, just like they do with the men's game. That Twitter thread under Caro's arrow brought up, when she said it doesn't make money yet, it brought up people saying, well, if it doesn't make money, they can just get what they're given. GWS also doesn't make Mm -hmm. money. We know how how much money has been sunk Suns. into that? Gold Coast Suns, same thing. And then this is another thing that Caro teased out last night on radio. She was speaking to Gil McLaughlin and she asked him about Stephen Canilio. Canilio? I mean, Caniglio. Would you be disappointed if Canilio left? Yeah, I wouldn't. I certainly, my advice is that's not a given. Um, I think he's a, a star player and I know he's a leader of that club and I, I know him a bit personally. I think he's a fabulous person and I'd, I'll be explicit. I want him, I'd love him to stay up there. Would you tell him that? Just told him. I found that astounding. Anyone else think that it's very bizarre when the CEO of the competition says, yes, I would explicitly like him to stay there? I feel like he pretty much just said, from now on, GWS, whenever they get a goal, they'll get nine points. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> makes it sound like GWS is... Special. club. Yeah. yeah. There was it, also some criticism about when Buddy Franklin yeah. went to Sydney because and, they wanted him to go to GWS. And they right? made it very clear that they wanted him to go to GWS and lambasted the Swans for securing the deal. And then they punished Sydney afterwards mm. by removing the COLA, the cost of living allowance. Yeah. I mean, no criticism of any. I mean, I like GWS as a mm. team, actually. And I know a lot of our listeners go for GWS. Some of my so best it's... friends are GWS. <laughs> <laughs> but it puts pay to the idea that it's a fair competition, right? Oh, no such uh, thing. Because, because it's clearly not. It's clearly not. And the problem with Gillan McLaughlin coming out and saying that so publicly and, and explicitly is that as the CEO of the organisation, he should have an appearance of fairness and neutrality. Uh, neutrality. Mm. And I think that he's been lulled into, like this is tip of the iceberg stuff, him being so overt about this, because we at the end of every game, you will hear people on the train going home, did you see the freeze for and against, right? We're looking in the wrong mm. direction. It's plain as the nose on our faces that this is not a fair competition. If you're... Geelong right now, you're on top of the ladder, you're not going to get a home final. If you're West Coast, you're never going to play a grand final in your home state until 2050 million or whatever it is. <laughs> um, there's payments going to clubs. There's The fixturing is never fair. Everyone plays each other once and a bit depending on how mm. much, how many people you can bring to the yard. You know, you might be playing in Ballarat in the middle of August and it's snowing and you have to shovel a path to the canteen. <laughs> you know, like it's not a fair competition. And I think that, Gil, I think that what he revealed last night is he knows it's not a fair competition and mm. he just explicitly said something. And perhaps yeah. doesn't want it to be. No. Sam Moston has been a senior corporate manager in numerous industries and holds various board positions around the country. In 2005, famously, she was the first woman ever appointed to the AFL Commission. She is a current director of the Sydney Swans board, 
Chair of the Go Foundation, which aims to create opportunities for Indigenous youth through education. And she's part of the Minerva Network, which aims to link up businesswomen and female athletes. It's been a very long time since we've had Sam with us on the Outer Sanctum. Welcome back, Sam. Oh, it's so good to be back. First up, I just want to ask about how the feeling has been within the Sydney Swans now that the first of those two Adam Goods documentaries has finally been released. Well, first of all, I just want to say congratulations to all of you um, and the, oh. the entire Outer Sanctum team because um, look at you. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Sam. Since we last spoke, I mean, <laughs> leading the way in how we actually now have really great conversations about sport and footy and, and now I think you're just the must-listen-to the must podcast out here that all over the place, which is must be so so rewarding for you guys, oh, Sam, but congratulations. That's We're Thank blushing. You. We're blushing. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so, if I go, I go, I guess part of my answer goes to I think the reason I think what you guys have done has been so important and powerful. Because we're living in a time of massive change. I'm just so excited that all these things are beginning to come to a point where we're having a mature conversation around sport and social issues with the right people at the table. We'll come back to women's, uh, women's footy and women's sport. But with Adam's films, the films have opened up an opportunity for people to finally listen to what it was Adam was saying throughout that period. And I think the genius of Ian Darling's editing of the final quarter with Adam's support is that he's he's been able to bring us into Adam's world during that time. So we get to see it and hear it in a real time sense over the course of those years as if we were Adam. But we also get the benefit of hearing Adam throughout the entire period. What I like about it is Adam hasn't been asked to say anything new. He and, and Ian as a filmmaker have just let that period speak for itself. But we get for the first time to see the consistency and the generosity and grace with which Adam kept coming back to some very basic truths about why he was talking about the things he was and that all he was doing was, was inviting us to go with him on that conversation and it was so disrupted by um, a series of interventions by others who wanted to paint him in a particular light and use certain moments to further other agendas, but certainly were not listening to Adam and giving him the due respect for what he was doing at that time. It predates what we're now having as a conversation on constitutional recognition and the Uluru Statement and a deeper dive into what, what this will mean for our country. For me, it's a, it's a great precursor to having that debate in a better way than we were having it back then. From that point of view, even the people on the right side of history who supported Adam at the time, I still feel like we didn't do enough. What, what could we have done differently to kind of circumvent that reaction? I think that's the question at the heart of both of the films. And it's the one that I ask myself as well. And I think anyone who lived through that period and was conscious of it has also had to reflect on. And I'm not sure we've got an answer because mm. the final quarter film is the first time anyone who was invested in this at all gets to see the combination of things that were going on that only Adam was experiencing. If you didn't live in Melbourne, you, you weren't hearing any of that commentary that came through that caused some of those initial shocks about about how Adam had, had dealt with that issue of racism around that Indigenous round if you weren't in Melbourne watching the footy show, you didn't see Sam Newton's comments. For me, it reminds me that it was a collective thing going on that Adam felt and maybe the club to a certain extent was aware of. But I think it's better that we throw forward and say if we were put in a similar circumstance where someone we felt was being vilified, bullied, whatever, we have to be better and act differently and educate ourselves as to the broader perspective within which that's happening. And of course, from the AFL's point of view, back then there was no Indigenous representation at the commission table. There was no senior executive 
um, responsible for inclusion and certainly not an Indigenous woman reporting directly to the chief executive and there is today. The things that stopped us acting well, I think, as an industry were about the absence of those voices at the highest level and in, and in your industry, in the broadcast side of things, a revelation that we weren't listening to those voices in, in that medium either. I think the lesson is what we just don't ever do again and we educate ourselves to, to stand up and to make sure we understand the full consequence of things that we observe from a particular angle. Of course, one of the really positive developments in recent years is the advent of the AFLW competition. Where are things at with Sydney's aspirations to one day have a women's team in that competition? Well, we're certainly very actively aspirant and we're, we're so excited at the prospect of having a team. Um, before I joined the Swans board and was involved more at the industry level, it was clear that one of the structural barriers that the Swans has is that the facilities that currently sit at the SCG and the pressure on the facilities means that there's there's absolutely nowhere in the Swans' current training and admin facility that would accommodate a new women's side. I'm sure at the board at the time when the first licences were being considered thought long and hard about whether it was fair to start building a team in Sydney with so few facilities that would mean that the women would be compromised and having to train vast distances away from where the men train. So the aspiration is there and now we have a time frame because we have our training and admin facility now underway just next door to the SCG. It's being designed with the women's team in mind so that the whole rationale behind the facility will be in inclusion and belonging for everyone playing the game. And so there will be change facilities and a proper set of support structures for the women's team. And in the meantime, what we've done is is put a lot of effort and resources into the Women's Academy, and we can't keep up with the demand. But we've now just got to get very serious about how we move to seeking a licence once we're in a new facility mid to end of next year, and then be ready to enter, I think, the competition in 2021. What do you see as the, the major challenges facing the women's competition, and what are the sticking points at this point? There's competing strategic objectives, I imagine, at the AFL around other forms of the game. And so what I think they have to be careful about and the industry has to continue to keep the pressure on is to remain clear about the strategy behind this and not step away or assume too early that the game has moved beyond a fragile start and can be self-sustaining. I think the biggest challenge is just making sure that all the resources, all the eyes that are required are on this game in its infancy and we don't make mistakes as an industry, to think this thing can can just take off on its own steam and, and be very conscious of the unique challenges that face a fledgling game. I'm sure you had the same feeling, but to bear witness to the grand final at the Adelaide Oval mm. with that extraordinary crowd, I would hate people to misread that to say, well, that proves that the game's OK and we don't need to give it terribly much attention. It's, it's on its way. It was a moment in time to say there's the potential that we can get to on a regular basis if we continue to make sure we're, we're supporting this as it needs. And as we introduce new clubs... We understand the pressure that brings on to the scheduling. Think clearly about how it, it works in conjunction with the men's game. Be a bit innovative and imaginative about about how the season plays out and listen to the people closest to the game itself when making decisions about the really important things that matter to the, to the girls and women themselves. What's your view about the degree of support that's offered to northern states? What's emerging, and it... I think it's a, an outrun of what we did when I was on the commission, which was that huge financial investment into the northern states with the creation of the Giants and the Suns. This was the kind of taking the heartland north and ensuring that these new markets were well supported and had great new clubs that would be emblematic of the new crowds and the new supporters that would come with that. The intention was always there, huge investments made. And now I think we're beginning to see what happens in a competition where 
we're, we're doing two or many, many things around the competition and other things have changed. So the combination of free agency, players increasingly wanting to be back home and the go home factor, while you're simultaneously pushing out into markets where a lot of the players won't have come from yet because of the immaturity of those markets to deliver players to lists. I think what's beginning to emerge is that the northern states, particularly the four clubs in Sydney and or in New South Wales and Queensland, are beginning to see some different issues to those that would play out in Victoria and the, and the other footy cities, Perth and Adelaide. So I think more and more we'll see the the four northern clubs beginning to think about what defines what kind of support is required. It, it may not just be financial, it may be rules-based, but taking into account this change culturally that we're seeing in players' um, interest in being at home and what that, that will do to the ability for these northern clubs to really prosper. An issue that's relevant for everybody at the moment and will continue to be is a talk of concussion and links that have been established between CTE um, and other brain injury. There's so many unknowns around this condition and it's just a problem that's not going to go away. How's it being addressed at Clubland and are people starting to prepare for the possibility that the game might have to change? I think we're all wanting to do the very best in response to this issue. I, I don't know about you, but when I watched that Will Smith film Concussion mm. uh, about what happened with the US situation, I left feeling the sense of dread at the time, and that's some years ago, about just what this would mean for our game should we find ourselves in a similar circumstance um, with the medical evidence. And then to see that beginning to transpire with the NRL and knowing that we've got a um, a high contact game with lots of potential for this and to see the, the, the way we the concussion is such a consequence of our game so often, I think we've all got to be prepared to think that whatever we begin to learn that's medically derived and is about the safety um, and the well-being of our players, we're going to have to adjust if, if we learn things that say we're putting any of our players at risk over the long term of their life. It's, one, it's like the mental health discussion. The more we learn about what's affecting our players, whether they're young or mature, women or men, playing in, in the leagues all around the states, how we're dealing with concussion, how we deal with injury management, this is where we'll be spending a lot more time in clubs thinking about um, our high performance units, our medical units, how we get ahead of these things. That may take us to a, um, a reimagination of why the soft cap exists and whether it, it actually prevents more and more money being spent on the things that really do matter and whether we need to have exclusions um, over time that allow clubs to spend more on this and to bring in the kind of expertise that will help us deal with things as they become evident. But I think we're all completely alert now to this as, as one of the issues that we're going to have to face um, and face well. And of course, we, we don't have any data yet around the women and uh, whether it's concussion or soft tissue or other injuries um, about whether our medical systems and our support systems in the clubs are going to be fit for purpose um, as we see the new parts of the game playing out. As I mentioned earlier, one of the big developments in the time since we last spoke to you globally is the rise of the Me Too movement. And one of the questions that's been thrown up by this movement is whether people who have abused their positions of power, particularly uh, against women, can or should be able to hold powerful positions, including on boards. What's your view on that? I've got a fairly simple view on this, um, and it won't surprise you. Your behaviour and the recognition that women have been subjected to inappropriate behaviour in workplaces, whether that's sport or otherwise, and the fact that women can now bring that forward and talk about it, I think is, is one of the great benefits of, of the Me Too movement and the fact that women are empowered to speak honestly about what their lives have been like when there's been an abuse of that power. When men have contravened that, 
or, or anyone has contravened that and has shown themselves to be lacking in the kind of leadership skills that we would expect of people we put into positions of authority and power and respect. For my part, I would want to understand why anyone would back people who have um, a history of poor treatment of women um, or poor treatment of anyone and would have to take into to consideration exactly how they get to remain in a position if there's clear evidence. And it would need to be clear and not just accusatory that their behaviour is not befitting the ethics and standards we expect of leadership today. As a champion of women in football and women's football broadly, how are we going to approach this a distinct lack of recognition for women in terms of Hall of Fame and statues mm. and, and just that sort of very public recognition of the incredible pioneers who have driven the rise of football for women, but also women in football, even in the men's game? You know, what would you like to see happen in the near future? Can you identify any real goals that we can aim for to redress this? Well, I mean, I think you guys have done a huge amount of work, powerful amount of advocacy in the past around who should be in our, our Hall of Fame. And the fact that you know, Debbie Lee is not in the Australian Rules Hall of Fame um, is a tragedy. It's a travesty. It's mm. it's just not mm. right. So uh, there, there's got to be a hierarchy of things we can fix fairly quickly. You know, I, I find it really embarrassing to be the only living woman in the life members of the AFL um, illustrious list because you know, Jill Lindsay was the first um, to be inducted into the life members and I was the second. But the contribution that women make to our game that's the equivalent of the life members currently, it's, it staggers me there aren't more women life members that would say would go to the general recognition of huge contribution to the game. And again, back to this idea of a hierarchy of things that we can fix easily, they should be things that I think should just be a high priority for the AFL, for the club system, for anyone who has a, an ability to influence some rethinking on this. That's just a sort of a baseline of stuff we've got to we've got to fix. Then I think we take a broader view as to what are the other contributions women have made that have not been recognised. There's a re-examination of this in so many parts of our society, and sport should be a, should be part of that as well. So I think we start with the easy things that we can rectify, then start to think more strategically about how we honour and respect and bring women into a discussion about our history rather than some kind of addendum or. Uh, used for examples that really go to an adornment to the game rather than central to the development of the game. Um, this game does not exist without women at all levels of, of um, a club land, community land. Every part of the game has been supported by by women, generally unacknowledged and and putting those hard that hard work in as volunteers. So I'd, I'd love to see a real push for us to to elevate women in our game. Uh, right across the country. As I said at the start, it's three years or a bit over three years since we spoke to you and it feels like so much has happened in just that short period of time. And so reconnecting with you today has given us an opportunity to take stock of how much can change and change for the good in a short period of time. It doesn't always feel like that, but it certainly does feel like that for me today. And you've been a huge part of so much of the positive social change happening in and around our game. So keep it up, Sam. We we love talking to you. We'll definitely get you on again, maybe in three years' time. The, the world will have been totally uh, totally uh, revolutionised, it. right? It's, it's, such, it's such an honour and a pleasure to be back talking to you. And I think um, so much of this is captured in the way you guys have just changed the whole way in which women can talk about their love of sport and where sport connects with the rest of our lives. I just can't think of a more thrilling time where we can actually celebrate so much happening for women and our women athletes continuing shining on the, the world stage and their, their leadership 
their behaviour, their, their sense of responsibility in those leadership roles, I think has set a whole new benchmark for how we think about sport. And the way you've covered that has, has helped so many more people come to, to why we all love our sport so madly and why we love footy in particular. I can't wait to come back on and keep thinking about what else has changed um, that, that lies ahead. When I grow up, I want to be Sam Mostyn, just mm. putting it out there. <laughs> I think there's already taken, there already is one. Wouldn't that be creepy? If I start, anyway. Um, one thing that I did want to say off the back of talking to Sam Mostyn is she is someone who has been recognised by the AFL. She's not in the Hall of Fame yet. It will happen. Mm-hmm. But it's a really important time. We're heading into awards season for AFL and for footy clubs and, you know, all sorts of things. I think the Emmys are coming, so, you know, does anyone you want to nominate for that? But what's really important is that I know that women feel awkward about nominating themselves for awards and they probably feel awkward about nominating other people, but it is time to do it. And the reason why is because when other people see women getting awards, then that sparks something in the next generation. So as much as it can be embarrassing, um, when you see a call for entries, I would really ask you to read through and think about people in your network that might be someone that deserves to be recognised because of what that might do to the next generation when they see that. On the back of that, I want to say that Michelle Redfern, who is an extraordinary voice in the footy space, if you follow her on Facebook or Advancing Women is her the name of her company. Um, you can also follow her on LinkedIn. She has recently linked to a really great piece on the Order of Australia Medal and how best to um, nominate people. It's given you a bit of a cheat sheet on what the best ways are to fill in the application form. And the other thing is the Essendon Women's Network Football Woman of the Year Awards are coming up. Nominate someone for that. There's also Emerging Leader and Community Awards. So there's lots of awards on that day. It's a really important celebration of women in the grand final week when AFLM is really dominating. So please, we'll put all of the links on our socials, but we would love to see you nominate some amazing women in your community and it will give them a boost. A lot of these people are working for free in those areas and an award is a way that you can actually recognise people and keep them embedded in your cultural community and make sure that other women are getting ignited and their passion is getting fulfilled and ignited by what other women are doing in that space. So please get on board. Okay, ladies, any further beeswax? Yeah, well, there was a huge story that came out of Adelaide this week with the AFLW Crows team announcing that they had split with the Northern Territory. You might remember that um, the Crows team is a joint NT Adelaide team. And so um, they've, of course, won two premierships together and Adelaide had been able to draft players from the NT through that arrangement. Journalist Sarah Black reported that there are rumours that another AFLW club might partner with the NT. So (laughs) (laughs) So watch that space. But that's a huge story that will have an impact on footy in South Australia in the in the years to come, I think. I'm playing Miss Helena today and through the mirror, I can see one of our listeners whose name is Catherine M and she got in touch <laughs> with us on Facebook. She got in touch to tell us about the Asian AFL Championships, which will take place in Pattaya in Thailand at the end of August. The men have been playing since 1999, but the women started last year and this year there are going to be seven women's teams and Catherine is going to be playing with the Singapore Wombats. Oh, adorable. One bet. I've never heard I that. Love I love it. I'm sure it's not a word, but it's gorgeous. Let us know how you go. Good luck. <laughs> I'd like to do a shout out to our ASPRO. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Says your professor, <laughs> Kate Sear, for her award today that you're going to be receiving. It's a faculty prize for research impact, and it is around research that you did that has 
literally resulted in the Daniels government changing law around crime compensation for victims of crime. So thank you. Congratulations. Thank you, you really marked it at the highest point, Katie. <laughs> really you really did. actually do make an impact. Thank you. We're so proud of you. Thanks. On behalf I'll of all front later. burner people. <laughs> front right. Front right burner Please. people. We are really proud of you. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Hayes. Here's some other very good final business news. Tony Armstrong is set to make history this weekend when he becomes the first Aboriginal person to call football on commercial radio. Armstrong will debut as a play-by-play commentator for Triple M Footy in the Round 22 match between Richmond and the West Coast Eagles at the MCG. You couldn't get a bigger match. Like, oh, my gosh, welcome. Welcome to the game. Like, that is going to be huge. Great news. Congratulations, Tony. Um, I'd like to do a shout-out to a really great decision that's been made that the VFL and the VFLW Grand Finals this year are going to be played at Prinny Park. So no Ooh. more in the dark depths, roof on, no <laughs> Docklands. Docklands, no seats filled stadium. I think it's going to be a beautiful place to play these grannies and I can't wait to get along and I hope that a lot of you all get along too. Thanks to everyone who has been getting in touch on the socials and also we've been getting a few more um, reviews on iTunes and we really appreciate yes. it. Kate always screen grabs them, sends them around and we all scratch our heads and say, who are these people that are saying such <laughs> nice things about we us? Love and, you. and it really gives us some ego and we love it and we walk a little bit <laughs> And we see you and we thank you so much. A big shout out to all of you who listen. And it's been so nice to be back today. I've really missed you, ladies. But Katie, you. you're you're out for a couple of weeks, aren't you? I am. Bonsoir. <sighs> I'm going to go and eat some croissants. And some baguettes. All right. Well, there's only one thing left to say. <laughs> Duck <Yeah>. on. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.